Well, in the book, uh, The Gospel According to Starbucks, Leonard Sweet tells the story of Ed Faubert. Faubert is what, in layman's term, is called a cupper. He's a coffee tester. Something I think maybe John could aspire to in his life. That's exactly right. Ed Faubert's discerning taste buds are actually certified by the state of New York. So refined is Faubert's sense of taste for coffee that even blindfolded, he can take a sip of coffee and can tell you not just that it's from Guatemala, but from what state it comes from, at what altitude it is grown, on what mountain it is grown. Those are some powerful taste buds, but I imagine Ed Farber doesn't sleep very well at night with all the caffeine. So there's drawbacks. Anyway, the point is that he knows coffee. He knows coffee so well that from one simple taste, he can tell you where the coffee bean was grown. That is our challenge today. Obviously not a coffee-tasting challenge today, but the challenge for us is to know, for, the, for us is how well do we know God's word? In our passage today, Paul tells Timothy to charge certain people to not teach any different doctrine. To command people to not teach any different doctrine, you first have to know what the correct doctrine is. You can't stand up against error if you can't identify what is right. We need to be as spiritually discerning about the truth as Ed Faubert is about identifying the taste of coffee. Do you have spiritual discernment? Are you able to spot error and stand up against it because you know what the truth is? There's another way to describe this, and that's with roots. To be able to stand strong against false teaching and false teachers, we need to have deep roots in God and his word. I can remember driving at night in Colorado as we're nearing Julie's parents' house. As we drove along, all of a sudden, something crossed the road in front of us. But I couldn't tell what it was. Then it happened again and again. It was something fast, and it was large, and soon I discovered when I got close enough to the car that I could see that it was a tumbleweed. You see, tumbleweed has this single shallow root, and as the plant dries up in the summer sun, the wind just easily breaks the plant from its root, and then it goes tumbling along. No food, too much heat, dried out plant, shallow single root, and you get a weed tossed tumbleweed. Hard life issues, spiritual desert time, neglecting spiritual food and enrichment, shallow roots into God and his word, and your life can become a wind-tossed tumbleweed susceptible to false teaching. Now, in that very same state of Colorado is also the plant with the deepest roots in the United States. It's called the one seed juniper. And it usually grows in upper elevations. It only grows to about 6 or 20 feet high, but its roots are known to have gone over 180 feet deep. Nearly 10 times the height of the plant is the depth of the root. That plant, too, is in a harsh climate where not much grows and where the wind is so strong, but it doesn't move. It's strong and stable because its roots are deep. Hard life issues abound, but spiritual food and nourishing your deep roots into God and his word. And your life can become strong and stable, even in the wind-torn world that we live in, able to discern the truth. Is your spiritual life more like a tumbleweed 
are like that one seed juniper, shallow roots into God and his word, leave you vulnerable to be tossed around by the cunning false teachers of our day. Deep roots into God and his word make you able to stand against the cunning false teachers of our day. Even facing the very same wicked wind of our culture, one plant, one person is uprooted and tossed. The other is strong and vibrant and alive and stable. How deep are your roots? Can you spot false teaching? Well, how do you spot a false teacher? Today we're going to look at five characteristics of a false teacher. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and follow along as I read from verses 3 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain peoples not to preach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Father, we are so thankful for your word and how it teaches us today. And may you illumine it through your Holy Spirit in our hearts and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. The first characteristic of a false teacher, they teach a different doctrine. See, the history of the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. And here in this letter in Timothy and with other evidence, we can deduce that, there, that Paul was released from imprisonment and continued his missionary journey. Having been released from prison, Paul is now in Macedonia. That is where we would call today the country of Greece. And he's urging, he's imploring, he's strongly pleading with Timothy to remain in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is an Asian minor, or we would call the country of Turkey today. See, the church in Ephesus is an important New Testament church. Paul founded the church on his second missionary journey, and on his third missionary journey, he stayed in Ephesus for three years, establishing the church, as recorded for us in Acts chapter 19. Paul was well acquainted with the church in Ephesus. He served there. He sacrificed there. He lived there. He taught them. In Acts 20, while he's sailing on his way to Jerusalem, he stops in Miletus and calls for the Ephesian elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus, to come to see him. Some of the most intimate words written in the Bible are there in this chapter 20, and he challenges them, and he encourages them, he blesses them. At the end of chapter 20, it says, and when he had said these things, Paul knelt down and prayed with all the Ephesian elders. And there was such weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all 
of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to his ship. Paul loved this church. Paul loved these elders, these leaders. Later, he would write a letter to the church at Ephesus, what we call the book of Ephesians. He wrote this letter during his first imprisonment in Rome and the ending chapters of the book of Acts. Paul's pastor's heart was forever connected to the people, to the church at Ephesus. So when he hears some news that things aren't going the greatest, he sends Timothy as a number one guy to go help this church. And now in this letter to Timothy, perhaps he's gotten even more information that the situation is dire, it's real, it's important in Ephesus. And he urges Timothy, stay there, please stay, help the church. Paul is so concerned about the situation in the church in his letter to Timothy that he jumps right into this presenting problem after just the most basic of greetings. Paul is concerned, he's troubled, he's alarmed that these false teachers and false teaching is occurring in this precious church. So he tells Timothy to command certain people not to teach any different doctrine. See, Paul, who knew they were, they were certain people, Paul knew their names. Timothy knew who they were. Their names didn't need to be written down, but their actions needed to be stopped. You know, it's interesting. Paul had warned the elders and uh, the pastors there at Ephesus in that final meeting in Miletus there in Acts chapter 20. He warned them that false teachers would come. In Acts 20, 28-31, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, neither day, to admonish everyone with tears. Unfortunately, the leaders had not paid careful attention to themselves and the flock. Unfortunately, they had not stayed vigilant and alert to the fact that false teachers would not only come against them from without, but would rise up even within their very own flock. They needed to stop them from drawing away the disciples from the truth. But they didn't, at least not effectively enough so that Paul urges Timothy to command them to not teach any different doctrine. Timothy was to tell them they were not to add to the doctrine of God's word. Timothy was to tell them they were not to take away from the doctrine of God's word. Timothy was to tell them that they were not to formulate new doctrines for the church after their own likings. That they were not to make what they thought were improvements or corrections to the doctrine. They were only to teach what they had received. Is the clear teaching of this verse that Timothy was to command certain people not to teach any different doctrine. For Timothy to know what they were not to teach, he had to know what they were supposed to teach. Jude 1.3 says, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, the Locus of doctrine, the sum of all teachings of the church, have been, once for all, delivered to the saints. How? How has that happened? Through the word of God. If you want to know if someone is teaching true doctrine, then compare them to the rule. 
Compare them to the standard. Compare them to the judge of all teaching. God's word. Remember question one and two of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question one. What's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Question two. What is the rule that God has given to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy him? Answer. The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. It is the only rule to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy him. The only rule, the only standard, the only directive by which we may know God, glorify God, enjoy God, obey God, is the word of God. If someone tells you, God told me, fill in the blank, especially if someone comes up to you and says, God told me to tell you, and fills in the blank, we can be sure that God isn't telling them a thing if it contradicts the teaching of our Bible. See, God is sending one clear and primary message to each one of us. You want to get to know me? You want to love me? You want to get to know how I want to lead you and love you? It's through the Bible. God's word is intimate communication to us. The Bible is our rule, which we evaluate our life experiences. So often we flip that over, we turn that around, and we evaluate the Bible according to our own experiences. And then what happens? We quickly find ourselves in error. Chuck Colson quoted Peter James Lee, an Episcopal bishop, as saying, if you have to make a choice between heresy and division, Always choose heresy. This church leader said it would be better to disobey God than to cause disunity. Now, unity is important. Unity is valuable, and God prizes that, and we prize that as a church. But it's not more important. It is not more valuable than obeying God. The first characteristic of any false teacher is not teaching the truth of God's word that has once for all been delivered to the saints. The next characteristic is that they thrive on speculation and controversy. False teaching is not just teaching false doctrine, but it's also creating needless controversy. Here in our passage, these false teachers have devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Myths are fiction and legends and fables, and they're focused on these endless genealogies. It was a common trap in Judaism as part of their national pride to mythologize their ancestors. The more awesome, you know, the more amazing, the more influential the people in your genealogy genealogy were, you know, the better person you were. The focus became on, on who you are because of your family heritage. None of it was based on reality or fact. It was all speculation and conjecture. You can just imagine how such a focus would cause controversy. The more awesome your genealogy, the more godly your heritage, the more special of a person you are. They were stressing heritage over Jesus. They were depending on their heritage for their salvation rather than Christ. They were spending more time on genealogies and edifying and building up the church. They were concentrating on questions and speculations and they were creating controversy. False teachers try to get your focus off what's important and under what's minor and insignificant. False teachers breed controversy and disagreement. As verse 4 says, false teachers take the focus off the work of God that needs to be done through faith. 
That word for work is not the normal Greek word for work. It's actually the Greek word for stewardship or economy. It carries with it that the false teaching aims to hurt the central purpose of God, the stewardship that we all have and responsibility to our God that all believers must be focused on first and foremost. And that's the redemption of mankind through faith. One commentator said, Paul feared that the Ephesians might spend so much time in fruitless discussion of novel doctrines that they would not carry out God's plan of bringing people to a place of obedience and faith before Jesus. No petty project or cause should usurp the place of promoting the gospel as part of God's plan. You see, false teaching takes our focus off the ball, off what's really important, and puts our focus on speculations and controversies. The next characteristic is that they put their views above love. Verse 5 is a great verse. While the aim of false teaching is to bring controversy, to take the focus off what's important, the aim of true doctrine is love. The aim of true doctrine is love that issues from a pure heart from a good conscience, from sincere faith. It is impossible to love that way and at the same time breed arguments and controversy. See, love is the epitome of Christianity. Love is the highest calling, the first command of our lives. What is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What's the second greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. After Jesus said this, he made a summary statement in Matthew 22 that says, On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. All the Bible depend on those two commands. Jesus also taught that love was a distinguishing characteristic of a true disciple. A fully committed follower of Christ is distinguished by love. John 13 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, we're not talking about earthly love here. We're not talking about a love that's based on feelings. We're not talking about a love that comes and goes, and it could care less what's actually best for you. It only focuses on what feels right at the moment. That's not God's kind of love. God's kind of love, agape love, is real and substantive. Its source is not us, but God. And we can only truly love that way because he showed us what true love is. And he makes it possible through his spirit. You see, real love is spiritual. Paul describes love in our passage today as coming from a pure heart. A pure heart can only happen to a forgiven and cleansed heart. A heart not weighed down by sin and selfishness but a heart that has been made new through a relationship with Jesus Christ. True love comes from a heart of forgiveness. He also says that love comes from a good conscience, from honest motives, a conscience that has been redeemed, a conscience that knows the difference between right and wrong, a conscience that is at rest, that is at peace with God, overflows with love. True love comes from a clear conscience. Paul also says that love comes from a sincere faith, a faith that is genuine and real, a faith that is set upon God and his word, a faith that is living, daily, dependent, walking, trusting God. True love comes from authentic faith. 
The first and foremost description of a true follower of Christ should be love. Biblical love. Love for God. Love for others. That comes from a redeemed life that overflows from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If that is the aim of our lives, if that kind of love is our aim, no false teacher with their divisive tongues would ever have a chance to draw us away from the truth. Verse 6 says that these certain people have swerved from love, that they've wandered away into vain discussions, into meaningless, empty words. They talk and they talk and they talk, but it doesn't lead to spiritual growth. It doesn't lead to benefit. It only leads to division. The Bible is telling us that a mark of a false teacher is one who has removed his focus from biblical love. Is your highest goal to express biblical love to God and to others, the greatest commandments. Another characteristic of a false teacher is that they put ambition above the truth. Verse 7 says that they want to be teachers of the law, but they are without understanding. False teachers put their own ambitions and self-interest ahead of the truth. They want to be recognized as a teacher. They want to be creative and original. They want to be the founders of a new movement. Instead of submitting themselves to the authority of the Scripture, They want their own authority, their own recognition, their own influence. They want to be the expert. Their focus isn't humility, but self-focused arrogance. Their focus is on teaching with authority rather than learning and thoughtfulness. They want to use their words to control rather than to edify and encourage. Jesus describes people like this when he said, They honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. And later Jesus says uh, to the Sadducees in Matthew, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, no matter how powerful or eloquent they speak, no matter how enticing or moving they preach, no matter how big their church, no matter how often they're on TV, the value of their teaching must be examined in the light of God's word. God's word is our authority. Period. Exclamation point. The last characteristic we want to look at today is that false teachers put self-righteousness above the gospel. It is amazing how self-righteousness can blind us to the truth. In verse 7, we saw that these False teachers wanted to be teachers of the law, the Old Testament Mosaic law. But in verses 8 through 11, it tells us that they didn't even understand what the law was all about. These false teachers were Jewish legalists. They were called Judaizers. They wanted to add keeping the Old Testament Mosaic law to the gospel. They taught for a person to be accepted by God, they needed Christ and to follow the law. It wasn't Christ alone, but Jesus and the law. That saved. It wasn't faith alone. You had to earn it. What Jesus did wasn't enough. You had to make yourself acceptable to God. They fundamentally misunderstood the whole purpose of the law. Verse 8 and 9 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law could be used unlawfully. They were using the law unlawfully. It can be used lawfully. What is it? Understanding this. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient and so on. The law wasn't given to gauge our self-righteousness, but to expose our sinfulness. 
I'm going to say that again. Very important summary statement. Think about this now with me. The law wasn't given to gauge our self-righteousness, but to expose our sinfulness. Spiritual legalists always get that backwards. They always turn God's rules into a badge of honor. That they're supposed to be a means of conviction and repentance and humility instead. Spiritual rules and God's commands and biblical laws were not given so that we can assess our righteousness. They were given to drive us to be aware of our unrighteousness. We are thus to come to God in humility for forgiveness. This is so important to understand. Some truly good intention, but nonetheless, false teaching has happened in churches like ours with the noble goal of spurring each other on to righteousness. You see, if you just kept certain rules, and it was always just certain rules, right? Legalism is always just a bound set of certain rules, and other rules and laws of God were ignored. If you just would keep these certain rules, then you were godly, righteous, and God was pleased with you and accepted you. But if you broke these certain rules, then you were ungodly and, you were, and God was displeased with you and he rejected you. Folks, when we are saved, we are saved by grace. And we are kept saved by grace. See, we're not saved by God's grace and then we're saved by obedience to a list of rules. That's what the false teachers in Ephesus were trying to say. The reality is that we are always, always, always 100% dependent on God's grace for our salvation from beginning to end. He starts it, he keeps it, he brings it to completion. It is our response of love to God whereby we endeavor to please him with our lives and obedience and faithfulness. In, in our obedience is not to earn God's favor, but to express a heart of love and devotion and commitment and thankfulness and gratefulness for what Jesus, what God has done for us. In Paul's list of sinners and sins in our passage today, he covers everybody to make sure that we understand that he's talking about everybody is not able to obey the law and earn their own righteousness. He even throws in at the end to make sure he covers everybody and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. By the law, we all stand condemned and in need of salvation. Legalism doesn't bring righteousness. It exposes our unrighteousness. False teachers never get that right. The real rule to examine our lives, in verse 11, is the gospel. The glorious gospel of our blessed God. It is through the gospel that mankind finds his acceptance with God. It's not through the law. It is not through our deeds or through works. It is only through the gospel that we can have a righteous standing with God. The gospel, the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a sinless life, took our place on the cross, bearing in his death the penalty of our sins, and then rising again in victory over death, over sin. This Jesus came to save sinners, to offer them, to offer us life, real life, abundant life, eternal life. The gospel. God's great grace and mercy. God's great forgiveness. God's great moment of hope and victory. It is in the gospel that is the rule of our lives. It is living out the gospel that is the aspiration of our lives. False teachers never get that right. Paul is telling Timothy that it is vitally important 
for a thriving church to have clear biblical doctrine and to call out and to stop anyone from teaching against the doctrine of the church. And to first and foremost, make it your aim to love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. So how deep are your roots? Do you know what you believe? Are you a tumbleweed or a one-seed juniper? Are you so connected to God and his word that you can spot false teaching? Are your biblical roots shallow and easily uprooted? Or are your biblical roots deep and strong and stable in the faith? The faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching, for Paul's letter to Timothy and how it encourages us and gives us insight into false teaching and and the deviance from your word. Lord, we pray. We pray for Poland Village Baptist Church. Uh, We have nearly 50 years of standing here proclaiming your word, Sunday school and preaching. Lord, we pray that it would forever uh, stand strong in your word, that false teachers and false teaching would stay away from these doors. Lord, that you would perfect in us a love, a love from a pure heart and a sincere faith and a good conscience. Lord, that you would grow in us an understanding of your word in such a way um, that we would know the truth and love it and follow it. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.